Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And so I uh, greet you this Saturday morning um, across the nation, whether you're listening live or on the archives. I'm very excited today to have a... um, a first-time guest, and a new topic, as we always try to have cutting-edge topics here. And I think it's very appropriate for our our holiday weekend because we are going to be talking about um, males and the very unique way in which they grieve and which they heal. And uh, our guest guest is uh, uh, LCSW Tom Golden from Maryland. Uh, But before we... um, we uh, have him on the air properly. I want to uh, say good morning to Delilah in Myrtle Beach. Hi, Delilah. How are you? Good morning. Doing great here. This is a great show today. It's one of our awareness shows, and I think this is the type of information that listeners can use for a lifetime um, when they come into specific situations in their lives. Maybe they can come back and listen again or pick up the books that our guest has written and help them through those, those hard times. Um, and just to give a little plug here for our network, the Inside Lens Network, we broadcast several different podcasts over, a, you know, over many, many years. We have about 700 episodes for listeners to go back and, and find about anything they want to hear about. It's there. So we encourage you to find us on iTunes. Um, please give us a, a five-star rating would be great. Yes. Um, leave, leave a review and hopefully you will enjoy the programming that we offer as well. Great. Well, yes. Thank you for saying that because, um, I think there's so much potential there, and uh, we all, all of us that do these shows work very hard, and we want to be able to share them and to impart information. And the beauty of it is that we seemingly never run out of good material as long as we can access those great guests, of which we have today. So I, have, I feel very fortunate that I have snagged Mr. Tom Golden. Um, and LCSWs are close to my heart because in my line of work for years, whether it's healthcare or working with disabilities or, or whatnot, um, LCSWs are wonderful, kind, good-hearted people, and they seem to have so much insight. So with that, um, Mr. Golden has had a 30-year career um, uh, in, in, in working uh, as, a, as a licensed clinical social worker in many aspects, has been on um, U.S. News uh, World Report, CNN, CBS News, ESPN, all kinds of different uh, platforms in which they seek his expertise, um, and also a very um, esteemed and accomplished author. So we, we have the opportunity to have him here this morning. So, um, Tom, are you there? I'm hearing a little scratchiness. I'm here. With, 
Okay, good. With that, good morning, and thank you so much for being on Shattered Wives Radio. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me and for the kind introduction. I appreciate that. Well, you are so welcome. So, um, in regard to um, in introducing this topic, as we said, um, if people are listening later on, we happen, and this is purely accidental, to book this show for Father's Day weekend. And invariably with any family, it brings up a multitude of, of different emotions, whether your, your dad is present, uh, whether your dad has passed, whether they have um, passed uh, due to a natural death or maybe a violent death, of which we, we deal with often, maybe they're missing. So I, I'm wondering, um, just in general, can you, can you uh, let our audience know is it different in terms of grieving if if the male um, is experiencing grief as a result of perhaps a, a natural death versus, say, something that has happened as a result of a violent death? Yeah, you know, there are stark differences between the two. And uh, in grief, in my first book, Swallowed by a Snake, I have a whole chapter that is dedicated to looking at what the different variables are and what makes grief harder and what makes it easier. And there's a couple of variables that are important to know. One is violence. When it's a violent death, it's harder and it takes longer. When it's a sudden and unexpected death, you can multiply that times two. Those two things, violence and unexpected deaths, uh, just create trauma with grief that elongates the grief. It makes it much more difficult. And it's an interesting aside, too, that um, also not having a body, when the body is missing, um, that elongates. important to understand why that is. I mean, why would that be that when you don't have a body, that it's harder to grieve and it takes longer? And the obvious answer is you can't tell the story. You know, if you don't have a body, if you can't see the body, if you can't see the person being dead, then... It, somehow your brain doesn't register it, and you can't tell the story of their death. And when we can't tell the story, that's when we run into trouble. Wow, that's very, that's very interesting. Hadn't thought of it from that perspective, but everything is about telling a story. And so yes. many people is like they're in the they're in the middle chapters. And we do you agree? Like many of us that that work, we we don't talk about closure we talk about resolution if this is kind of the scenario is that true if you're, you're kind of feel like in suspended in uh you know some kind of suspension there where there there is no there is no end there is no resolution but yet you are stuck in your grief so how yes. do we how do we deal with that scenario well, you know i tend to think of grief not as healing but as a transformation because it doesn't really go away. I mean, it's not something that we heal from, like someone has a cut on their hand and it heals and, and, and it goes away and even the, the scar kind of goes away. It's not like that at all. Grief transforms us. It moves us from being one person into being another person. And sometimes that journey is a tough one. You know, it's very, very difficult. But, you know, and it, it takes a long time. You know, if you can imagine someone who had their leg amputated, to the enemy and a year later, would you say to them, aren't you over that yet? <laughs> you know, aren't you over <laughs> yeah. that yet? I mean, right. and that's what people have to put up with in our culture. And a lot of times people after a year, someone, a sudden death, the first year is basically dealing with the shock. 
you know, you're just completely wiped out from the shock. But that second year, you start having more emotion, and the people are looking at you and saying, aren't you over that yet? And it's like they have no concept of what people have been through. They have no idea of the pain that's now coming up after it's been sort of submerged for a year, either through the court system, you know, when we deal with the courts and the, and the loss, lawsuits and whatever, that keeps us from processing the grief. It slows the grief down. It's not until after that stuff is finished that people start emoting in a different kind of way. So, because of course, again, then it's because you can then tell the story. You know, the story is is able to be told at that point. Mm-hmm. Is there a um, identifiable point, even very early on, when you can say, okay, they're in, they're active, you know, actively grieving, but you can see signs of beginning healing? How do we? Let's talk about you know healing in general, healing and mourning. How do we identify the first? I guess, you know, sparks of healing is starting to take place. You know, I think people intuitively know that they're starting to heal, and they feel differently. It's very subtle with grief. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if you watch smoke, smoke comes up and you go, oh, there's the smoke, then it literally disappears. You know, you can't see it anymore. And you go, wait a minute, what happened to it? And it's almost like that with grief. I mean, it, it comes and it goes, and it's, uh, it ain't easy, you know. But it, mm-hmm. we, we kind of can intuit things. Like I remember with my, after my father died, uh, my son and I started listening to music together. And I realized, when I listened to that music, I realized, oh, I'm feeling a little bit better. But it's a subtle thing that happens over time. It's not something that goes, oh, now I'm all better. A transformation is a tricky journey, and it's a tricky, um, slippery slope. You know, that is, there are no signs that say, oh, I'm better now, or oh, I'm not. But when you start feeling a little better, you, you kind of clue yourself into, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's a little light there that I can see as a crack in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do you, do you feel like in the beginning should you um, – around your, try to um, not isolate yourself, but begin to um, interact with with people who may be more receptive and are are not saying, you know, oh, well, it's been two weeks. I don't, I don't want to talk to that person because (laughs) they're still, they're still actively grieving and I can't deal with it. How do we begin to ease into that? Well, I think the first thing to know is that everyone has their own way to heal. And everyone does it naturally in their own way. And the more therapists can realize that and love people for who they are rather than trying to get them to go into your track and do it the way you think they should do it, the better off we're all going to be. And what I've found over the years is the first element in any kind of healing from loss is finding safety. You know, you've got to find safety first. And the bottom line is men and women have very, very different places where they feel safe. And we know now from research that women feel safe interacting, talking with other people. There's this great research done in the early 2000s by Shelley Taylor, and she realized that almost all of the stress research had been done on male subjects. So she said, wait a minute. And Shelley's a, a researcher out at UCLA. She said, wait a minute now. Let's only study women. She only studied women under stress. And what do you think she found? What she found was, when women are stressed, they don't fight or flight like we expect from men. Women tend and befriend. In other words, women move towards interaction with others when they are stressed. 
Men generally do not. So that's the clue. You know, it's like when we feel safe, what kind of safety does it take for us to feel that? And also, then what do we do once we do feel safe? And those are the clues that help us understand how we individually heal. Because people need to know that they are already doing this right. You know, people are healing in the right ways. It's just there's so many different ways to heal that a lot of times people don't recognize that what they're doing is actually healing. Mm-hmm. And is well, it, how many times, excuse me, how many times um, in in this whole process do people honestly f- go through the what seven steps of grief or whatever it was, however many there were, I can't remember, um, that was laid out early on? Uh, is, do you find yeah. that? Yeah, do you find that people really do follow that, or do they kind of go into one, then maybe get stuck in number two, and how long does it take to get to number three, and should we really even be following this? No, you know, grief is not a linear thing, and Kubler-Ross, when she first came up with the uh, the ideas about the five stages, those five stages had to do with dying. They did not have to do with grieving. So somehow the media kind of glommed onto it and decided that actually, oh, that must be about grief and the five stages of grief, and it's just silly. You know, I've I've worked with grief for a long time, and a lot of people will go through all three, four, five of those stages every day. You know, it's 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 not a linear path. We go up and down. Sometimes people will feel like, hey, today I'm feeling, you know, like I'm resolved, and the very next day it's whammo. You know, they're back in this deep grief. So, you know, I would stay as far away from the stage theory as possible. It doesn't really help. Yeah, and everyone's timetable is different, or if they see uh, yes. triggers in their environment, that'll, you know, shoot them back. You know, uh, so, you know, like I say, it sounds highly variable. But, you know, the, the thing that we really want to key in on here is, you know, discussing the differences between female and, and male grief. Can, tell us, tell us how you initially got hooked into, um, hmm. you know, looking at looking at this in earnest. And um, and like I said, you've, you've had a career for o- over 30 years, and this has become your area of expertise. And why why has it taken so long for people to really look look at this? And how do we bring it to the fore? Well, I first got into things when I got out of graduate school and was looking for a job and couldn't find a job and couldn't find a job. And finally, this death and dying place said, uh, would you like to work for us? And I said, sure. I didn't know much about death and dying. And uh, so I came on board and there was like 20 therapists there on staff. And everyone, every therapist was a female except for me. And what I found out was that a part of what they needed me for was to see all the men. So they'd they'd route all the men to me because nobody wanted to work with the men. You know, and I found out real quick why. You know, we've been taught in graduate school to to sit and talk about it and face each other and, and you know, talk about feelings and, you know, things like that, and which works very well with women. But it was not working with this caseload of men that I got. So basically, you know, I had to figure out what really helped men, and it was that first step that, that threw me into the chaos of, of not knowing. And that's really when I ran into the cultural research, which is fascinating stuff. But what it basically says is that 
um, the, what I found was that the cross-cultural people, the indigenous tribes, will tend to give men things to do after a loss. They'll take care of the body. They'll take care of the guests. They'll dig the grave. They will make the coffin or the, the box to hold the ashes. They do the ritual. I mean, the men do things, do things, do things. Now, the women in indigenous tribes will also do things, uh, but it's not nearly as often as it is for the men. So this is an important piece. You know, it's, lot, it's not like men do it one way and women do it another. It's a big blend. But generally speaking, the men are moving towards action and the women are moving towards interaction because the indigenous tribes would give the women a place to talk. And the women would all talk and be together and cry and keen and wail and whatever while the men were out working. And so that gave me a clue, and I started watching what the men did in my practice. And I realized at that point that, oh, my gosh, these men are doing actions that honor the loss. And that's the key in when you can act in some way that honors the loss, then you are grieving because the emotions are coming up while you do that. You know, and you can uh-huh. take, gosh, the policeman I've worked with, and it sounds like you do a, um, a good deal of crime stuff. You know, a lot of policemen um, whose partner was killed or um, some other tragedy, you know, the policeman, what will they do? Naturally, police will often do things in honor of that person. You know, whether it is uh, try and, and get a promotion or, or have a golf tournament or they do something that honors the person who died. And it's through that action and through the honoring that they tell their story. In the same way that the women would use interaction to tell their story. And so you can see why people don't get it. I mean, you know, <laughs> how many wives have I heard who have said, oh, he does his work, work, work. It's true. He's out there working, but what's he doing? What he's doing is his work. He's dedicated his work in honor of whatever it was that happened that created the loss. So so you look for the ways men have uh, used action to connect in with their loss and pain. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, in our culture, we've subcontracted all of the actions after a loss. So the building of, of the coffin or the digging of the grave, or even giving the eulogy, or taking care of the body, all of that we pay other people to do, and it's left our men with nothing to do after a loss. And wow. that's a dangerous, dangerous <laughs> spot. You see how, it's, how we've screwed things up? You know, the women have plenty of room to talk all the time, but the men, the things to do after a death, have all been taken away. So it leaves men in funeral homes tapping their feet. It's all done, right? <laughs> Yeah, it leaves men in funeral homes tapping their feet, not knowing what to do. You know, and I've talked with these funeral homes before. I say, look, here's an idea. You're selling a lot of coffins. Why don't you just sell plans for a coffin with the wood and, and directions about how to do it and give men the chance to build the coffin themselves? And none of them will take me up on it because, of course, they'd lose a lot of money. But when my I father like died, my, <laughs> my brother and I built the box for his ashes, and it was just a very powerful experience. You know, where we built it for it took us a week to do it, and, and his friends were there, and we all worked together. And, and as we were building that box, we were all telling stories about my dad. Mm-hmm. You see how it works? And right. trust me, there was sawdust on that floor, but there were tears there too. And it was because we were doing an action together that honored him 
that we are able to then tell the stories. If you'd taken that same group of men and put them in the living room in a circle and said, talk about your feelings, what do you think would have happened? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, right. yeah, we would have been awkward. But when we were doing something shoulder to shoulder, it was easy. It came naturally. It flowed. Mm-hmm. So they have, in that scenario then, here they are in their three-piece suits sitting there at the funeral parlor, and they have nothing to do, nothing to build or afterwards. So you have right. all these pent-up feelings. So what do you do with that, and how do you get from there to, you know, i got to do something. And I, I just have to insert, too, this reminds me so much of sure. the um, director of our nonprofit, but Q Center for Missing Persons, who really tells families in the acute stages, right, Delilah, that the families just don't know what to do, don't know where to go, and instead of them maybe not doing the most appropriate things, she gives them jobs to do, tasks to do, that Excellent. will kind of keep them productive. And it Excellent. works in terms of involving the families, um, Tom. Yes, yes. Yes, it gives so she's on the right track do. with that then, right? With part of the grieving? She's on the right track. Bless her heart. All that's, right, Monica. That's, she's Monica, you're doing good. <laughs> but, you know, that's a really good question. When men don't have traditional rituals in our culture to deal with death, what do they do? And so that's when I started watching carefully what men do. And mm-hmm. men do the most amazing things, and very few people even see it. You know, men take some action that helps them connect in with that loss. And not just some men, almost all men do this. And you can think about, you know, famous people. Michael Jordan, you remember Michael Jordan, his father was murdered? Mm-hmm. And, and after his father was murdered, he said, I'm leaving basketball. And everyone was, oh, no, I was, oh, no, because I loved Michael Jordan, even though I wasn't a, a Bulls fan at the time. But Jordan said, no, I'm leaving basketball. Then, oh, I think a month or two later, he said, I'm going to start playing professional baseball. And everyone was like, what? Are you kidding me? It was like, Mm -hmm. this is crazy. What people didn't know and what he didn't tell them at the time was that Jordan's father always wanted him to play baseball. And he was Uh. doing this, honoring his father by playing baseball. And, you know, in in books about Jordan, he, he talks about driving in to practice in the morning and talking to his dad and telling his dad he's doing this for him. You know, it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. But it, it tells us a little bit about, and no one knew that. Very few people knew that Jordan was doing this in honor of his father. They just thought he was going nuts. Right. But what was he doing? He was grieving. In his own mm-hmm. way, he found a way to connect an action with honoring his father, and that's grief. Right. Wow. Um, well, you know, in the scheme of things, since you've kind of um, happened to develop this through your practice, how uh, it sounds like uh, there may be a lot of therapists out there that are sort of misdiagnosing things and saying, "Oh, these men, are, they, they don't, they don't um, talk about their feelings, and and you know, they're <laughs> going to go to alcohol and drugs, and they're doing yeah. so they're not keying in on the things that you are. How how common?" Is that, and do most, uh, is there a, a best practice that you're developing with this that you're trying to get out to the to the social work association to say, we have to start looking at this in a whole different way? 
Yes, I've been writing articles and um, doing workshops for years and years, and it's a slow process. It's a really slow process because the general default is that in order to grieve, you have to cry and talk. And if you don't cry and talk, then there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and that's simply not true. The other thing we haven't talked about yet is that men will move towards action to heal their loss and to tell their story because, you see, that's where they feel safe. Or they'll move to inaction, pulling back and withdrawing. And then men will tend to do what we call grind on it. That means they think about it over and over and over again. But think about it. They give, they have the same conversations in their brain that a woman might have in a support group. But they're doing it in the privacy of their own home or of their own quiet. A lot of men use the car. You know, they'll, they'll grind on it as they're driving someplace. And then once they get there, then they're back, back in the saddle, you know, doing what they need to do. So men tend to use inaction or action. Women tend to use interaction. Remember, this is not uh, uh, 100%. It's always gray. And one important thing we need to talk about a little bit is the biological, pre- um, biological things that come before this. And that is in utero at two months, there's something called a testosterone flood. And this testosterone flood floods the boy's brain with testosterone. And this changes all kinds of things in the boy. And about, I think it's about 15 or 20% of boys do not get the testosterone flood, but almost all boys do. And some girls get excessive testosterone also. And, of course, we tend to call them tomboys, right? We've all mm-hmm. known girls who've had a little bit more testosterone in utero, but they're finding out now, and, and they've been doing this research for 40 years, I guess. They're finding that there's at least four things that change in boys during this testosterone flood. One is their sexual orientation. One is their gender identity. That is whether they think they're male or female. Another mm-hmm. is their level of, level of aggression. And the other is the way they play. And those are four things where they're absolutely certain are impacted by this testosterone flood. But there's a lot more. You know, they, most of the researchers now are saying that the flood turns the boy's brain into what's called a um, <coughs> gracious goodness. Excuse me. Turns his brain into a practical brain, where he thinks in terms of uh, systems. You know, it's a systems brain. Legos. Think Legos. You know how boys love Legos. Put them together, tear them apart. Put them together, tear them apart. This is partly due to the systems brain that they get from the testosterone flood. This is not to say that women don't enjoy systems or Legos. It's just that boys tend to get more of it because of this flood. The girls tend to get what they call a relational brain, which is more interested in feelings and in relationships with other people. So, you know, think engineers. Engineers are interested in Legos, right? They're not interested in people stuff. Whereas the females tend to go towards jobs that are much more people-oriented. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right, right. The important thing for us is to realize that even in utero, we're developing differences, and, and the testosterone is huge. I mean, this flood is huge, but the testosterone, what they call activational testosterone, which comes later, uh, is even more important for men as far as the way they heal. Um, and what they've found now is that, or they found it out indirectly because of trans men. Do you know the trans men? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask because I'm uh, 
But yeah, I I I have a contact in in working with the LGBT community, and I was very yeah. interested in what you're saying. Are you saying yeah. that then fifteen per fifteen percent in utero don't get this flood, and there and therefore perhaps that's a predisposition to uh, being transgender or any of these other things you're talking about? Have them read the research. It's <clears throat> it's not. <clears throat> excuse me. It's not a simple thing. It's not an on and off kind of thing. But yes, mm-hmm. sexual identity part right. of this flood, right. and it's worth reading the stuff. Now, what I've read are some uh, beautiful books by trans men. One in particular, um, oh gosh, what's the name of that book? The Testosterone Files by Max Valerio. It's just a fascinating book. But Max is a trans man, and he talks about his transition and what happened. And when Max started taking huge doses of testosterone, all kinds of things happened. But what I was interested in, what happens emotionally? And Max said, Max said, you know, instead of uh, wanting to go and talk about this with my girlfriends, suddenly I wanted to jump up and do something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then, then he said, and something else happened. Now, when I start to feel something, I can't articulate what I'm feeling as I'm feeling it. When I read that, I went, oh, Lord, of course. (laughs) Because as a man, I know that it's very difficult to articulate, to be very clear about what you're feeling as you're feeling it. It gets blurred. It really gets blurred. The men you talk to, ask them about that. They'll say, oh, boy, yeah, that's about right. And women do not understand this. They think men are able to process emotions like they do. And ladies, we're not. We don't have the huh. same biocomputer. Blame you know, it on women, testosterone, yeah, or lack thereof, right? <laughs> women are very clear about emotional stuff. You know, this is in therapy. The women have a distinct advantage, you know, because of this emotional intelligence they have, basically. And the men, it's clouded by testosterone. That's fascinating why they think it is. You know, the evolution of psychologists say that the uh, part of the reason for this is that men have been used as cannon fodder for years, you know, and so because of that, um, they've had to learn how to pull the trigger and not how to emote. You know, I mean, when you boys at 13 or 14 years old in the old days were sent out to the perimeter of the compound to protect, and those boys needed to learn how to protect the environment and not to think about feelings, because what's a feeling going to do if you have to pull the trigger, it's going to screw things up, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So they're thinking that boys evolved by their testosterone blurring their emotions as they're in a, a, a fix so that they're going to think clearly. They're going to think clear. They're not going to think with their feelings. They're going to think with what they see. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that Does that relate to why some men that go into the military are more successful than, than others with, you know, relating to this discussion and, you know, the hormones? Yeah, there's all kinds of factors that go into things like that. So I wouldn't say that, that it's a predictor, but I'd say that it's one piece of it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Testosterone <laughs> levels are huge. And we know now that testosterone, of course, uh, slows down emotional tears. So the more testosterone you have, the less likely you're going to tear up. So, you know, and the, 
the guys can think about this. And guys think about this. When you were five or six or seven years old, could you cry easy? Just about every man I've talked to says, yeah, right. you could cry pretty easy. And I say, okay, when you got to be 13, could you cry? No, I couldn't. And what happened? That's when he got his testosterone. Because there's an inverse relationship between testosterone and tears. Now, what happens is, interesting, that as men age, and men get to be 60, 70 years old, the testosterone starts diminishing, and they start getting more in touch with the tears again. It's a blessing in some ways. As I can right. tell you, you know, being of a higher vintage, I mean, it's just, uh, it's wonderful to not be driven by testosterone in, in such a way and, and uh, be able to emote more freely. You know, so would you, would you said, see that more people are, uh, that males that you see then, they might be more receptive to, to coming to you initially for, for therapy in that age group because they might be more in touch with emotions, feel more comfortable? Well, yeah, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Yes, I would think older men would be more likely to come into therapy. Men, therapy is not friendly to men. You know, therapy has been built for women. You sit and you talk right. and you face each other. Men don't like to face each other. What, what does it mean when men face each other? It means, you know, boxers face each other. Hockey has a face-off. It's like that's when mm-hmm. men compete. You know, a man gazing into another man's eyes is a sign of competition or confrontation. Very different from a woman gazing into a man's eyes or a woman gazing into a woman's eyes, where it means connection and closeness. Do you see right. how it works? Yeah. So, Go ahead. It's just men are very, very different. And the more we can learn about them, the more we can love them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think <laughs> that um, when we were talking a little bit off air, we, uh, you know, you just seem to have really identified the core issue right right there in terms of how they respond or, or do not respond. So it, isn't it true, uh, can you give our audience some practical examples of how you, um, in terms of uh, like females or mothers working with, with their sons uh, and the sons being reluctant to, you know, go to therapy. Isn't it true that yeah. you had mentioned that females, you actually give the, the mothers assignments and, and therefore, you know, uh, sort of do therapy yes. in that respect. Is that true? Yes. Yes, absolutely. When mothers come to me and say, oh, please, I want you to see my son. His, his father died and he's, he's not talking about it and he's not crying. And I'll say, okay, I can see your son. Probably take me a year and cost you $15,000 or whatever, you know, or I can work with you for a couple of weeks and teach you what I do with him and you can do it. And at first they're not real into it. But I'll tell you what, after a week or two, they realize that they have a relationship with their son already. They love their son. Their son loves them. It would take me three months, six months to develop any kind of relationship with him. And that's a long time, and it, it's a waste of time, you know, unless you have to do it like that. So, and the women love it. You know, they love it because once they learn how boys are different, once they learn how not to get into power struggles with boys, it's much, much easier then to deal with his emotion. Once they learn that they can, they'll do things by, or they'll emote by doing things together, 
you know, my son, when he was a little guy, he was like, oh, gosh, maybe seven or eight years old when my father died. And the year after my father died, he and I would wrestle, right? Of course, we wrestle all the time. But as we're wrestling, all of a sudden he'd stick his head up and he'd say, uh, Jimmy got beat up today. I'd say, oh, yeah? Was it bad? Yeah, blood was coming out of his nose. And then he's back on top of me again, right? And so we go back and forth and back and forth. And then all of a sudden he sticks his little head up. He says, I miss granddaddy. Mm -hmm. Feeling as he is wrestling. Do you get it? Yeah. It's through the activity that he's able to feel safe. And when he feels safe, then he can pop his little head up and tell his story. So this is what women need to learn about their sons is he's much more likely, Mom, to, to open up when he is in the midst of doing something with you. Do things with him. Play basketball. Take walks. Challenge him. Get him to teach you his video game. Who knows what? But do things with him rather than expect him to sit and talk. Because sitting and talking is not his forte. Yeah, that's very valuable. But here's the devil's advocate here. What if you know, the dad has passed away and would, and mom tries the particular approach and it would, wouldn't they automatically kind of resent mom because dad was the best buddy? How do you, how do you bridge that, Tom? Oh, okay. Or I didn't quite get the question. Can you, can you repeat that? Um, it wouldn't, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking common sense that, that maybe they would resent mom because dad was the best buddy and, oh, I don't want to talk to mom. Oh, okay. I want dad to be there. How do you bridge that? And is that a scenario that you see commonly? Of course. Yeah, that happens all the time. You're talking about when dad dies? Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. want to do anything with mom. I want dad. I don't want right. to wrestle with she mom. She sucks. <laughs> she you sucks. You know what I mean? And yeah. But he, he realizes that she is all he's got now. And he also realizes that she's one of the few people that he can be close to about all this. He probably can't talk to his friends in the same way. He can't talk to the people at school, you know, but he could talk with his mom. So, yeah, and that's why she needs to put him in a place where he feels safe in order to help him to open up. And he's going to feel safe when he's doing something with her. You know, some boys really like the car. Mom can drive them in the car, and they'll suddenly feel safe in the car. I'd say about 50%, but there's another 50% of boys who the car is the worst thing in the world. They want to get out, you know. So Mm -hmm. the moms know their boys, and they need to find out what action it is that he likes that he's going to open up with. The other thing is, once you do this action, like when I'm wrestling with my son, I don't wait for him to emote, you know, and I don't expect him to emote. I enjoy it if he does, but if he doesn't, we just wrestle. You know, same thing with going fishing. Take him fishing. As you're sitting in that boat fishing together, you may not say a word, and that's okay. But he may also open up, and that's a boon. You know, that's that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, it, so and is this a process over time? I mean, do you, are you going to see some some change? Maybe like in a month or so when you start doing doing these activities or that is probably variable? Yeah, I don't know if you can put a time limit on it and say you're going to see things within a certain time. You know, the important thing is to just slowly take a chunk out at a time, you know, a little bit at a time, getting people to tell their story. And, uh, you know, everyone tells a story in a different way. Get them to tell that story over and over again because that's what it takes. 
I mean, and we have to remember to let people know that you've got to tell the story over and over, and it's not something that's going to go away quick. You've got to work at it. You've got to do it a little bit at a time. And that's why it's important for people to journal a little bit. And, you know, because if they journal and they write down exactly what they're feeling at this particular time, they can look at that three months later and they can go, oh, God, that's right. That's what I was feeling then. I'm different now. Whereas if you don't write it down, it feels like you're in the exact same place. People get depressed. They think, I'm not getting better. I'm not getting better. Oh, you know, so we need some markers because this grief stuff is very slippery and it's very subtle and it uh, it doesn't feel like we're getting better. Plus, when we do get better, it happens in a sawtooth kind of way where you go up and down, up and down, up and down. And so the down feels like, oh, I'm back where I was before. But we forget that sawtooth goes in a slow slope that goes up a little bit at a time so that after three or six months, we do feel a little bit better than we did, you know, three or six months ago. And then after, does it tend to even out after a certain period, perhaps? No, everybody's different. Every grief is different, too. You know, I mean, like we said, when, when grief is unexpected, when it's violent, when there's ambivalence is another piece. It's all in fact I did a whole chapter of this in, in the Swallow by Snake book, which is uh yes. um a good one to read for just understanding what grief is. Um but there's all sorts of variables involved that make grief more difficult. And you can't say that um you know someone's gonna heal within a certain period of time. It just doesn't work like that. It's just it's more subtle than that. Absolutely. Can can you uh, um, tell us a little bit about um, um, you, your books with regard to? I know when we're speaking about mobs, you have a particular one that would would seem to be very useful. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, I've written three that. books. One is Swallowed by a Snake, which was the first one I wrote, which really is a good map for men. It's kind of a map of grief. It, it sort of lays it out and says, here's what it is. Here are the variables involved. Here's what you can do. You know, and here's, you know, you're likely doing actions, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the, that's about 180 pages, I think. And so I, I got feedback from men over the years that they wanted something short. They wanted something quick. They could pick up, read it, and get out. And so I wrote this book called The Way Men Heal, which is, I think it's less than 60 pages. It's very, very quick. And it uh, just tells the story fast. It's a masculine book because you, you get in, you get out, and you're finished. You know, and and mm-hmm. actually the 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 way men heal has uh, it was about I guess ten years after the snake book, it was a while after. So there's a lot more research in that one, and that was I guess four or five years ago. I forget. I can't keep track of time. And then the last book I wrote was I realized that there are so many mothers out there that are completely flummoxed by their boys. They don't get the boys because they just don't understand them. And so I wrote a book called uh, Helping Mothers Be Closer to Their Sons, Understanding the Unique World of Boys. And I just love that little book. And the moms love it too because it kind of takes you on a journey and understanding all the things that go on that create uh, your little guy and how he's different from your little girl. And they're very, very different. You know, boys and girls go through very different things. We talked about the testosterone flood, but the the piece about testosterone that's important to know is that now, you know, for years they have been trying to link testosterone with aggression and violence, and they failed. 
because it's not linked with aggression and violence. In fact, what they know now, or they think they know, is that it's actually the aggression that's stimulating the testosterone, not the other way around. But what they know now is that testosterone is not about violence and aggression. It's about striving for status. Striving for status. Men strive for status. They want to be number one. They want to get better. They want to do things well. You know, have you seen that before? Yeah. We're number hmm. one. You know? <laughs> and so, in, and men do this in all sorts of ways. You know, there's, everyone's got a different niche. You know, everyone, some guy might be an academe. He's going he's gonna to strive for status in getting the most uh, prestigious journal articles. Uh, another guy is going to be a football player. He's going to want to be in the Pro Bowl. Another guy is going to uh, be a piano player. He's going to want to be able to play rock model off. And on and on and on and on. But usually men are goal-directed, and the testosterone is pushing them to strive for status. And I wish we had time to talk about the whole hierarchy thing because men live in a hierarchy. You know, we as men live in a hierarchy, and it's exemplified by stripes on your sleeve when you're in the police department or the army. Uh, the hierarchy is based on the number of stripes you have on your sleeve, right? Right. And it, this helps men because it says who's in charge, and it helps them work together in order to create uh, success for a common goal. And it's this hierarchy that drives men a lot of times. And, of course, underneath the whole piece of hierarchy is uh, finding an attractive mate. You know, that's why men strive for status, in order to impress women. Yeah, that's that. That's an interesting piece, too. Uh, just to give you a time check, we have like a, a 13 minutes uh, time. All right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, this is just really fascinating, insightful stuff. I, Delilah, what are your thoughts at this point? What kind of well, going back in your to mind? going back to the discussion about healing from grief and how different people do it, whether it's male or female, how do you deal right. with, let's say, someone who lives in long-term denial? Is what I see, and or they're suppressing their feelings or suppressing their grief over a long term. How does that affect and how does that impact this person and their journey towards healing? You know, the first thing to know is that be real sure that they're suppressing things. Sometimes people are dealing with it. It's just in a way that we don't realize. But, you know, the whole thing of, of stuffing feelings and stuffing old trauma is, to visualize it in terms of uh, putting a pebble in your pocket. You know, if you just got one pebble in your pocket, it's uh, not a big deal and doesn't affect your day. But the more pebbles you put in there, uh, the more it's going to impact you. And if you put them in both pockets and then tie a big rock on your back, I mean, after a while, this stuff piles up. And so it starts affecting the way we can enjoy our lives. And that's what we need to be careful of. You know, the, the, Inability to process grief can indeed back up to the point where it keeps us from enjoying being alive. And that's if someone is at that point, you need to get them to a good therapist. You know, there's so many things out there now that can be done to help people with this kind of difficulty. You know, with old trauma, the EMDR stuff is just so important. I don't know if you guys have, have done stuff on EMDR before, but 
Do you, do you know about EMDR? Yeah, um, yeah, we have another social worker that, that I've called on a number of times. I believe he did t- uh, it during one show tell us about it. But if you'd like to review, go ahead. Well, it's just I've been using it for I don't know how many years, 20 years, out of old memories. And when we take the sting out of old memories, it makes us a little more comfortable in our in our boots. You know, it gives us a little room to move. Because it's that sting in the old trauma that is just uh, its difficult to carry around. And people notice it right away. You know, and it's such a simple technique and it's so easy. And, and uh, it works so quickly that I just recommend it to anybody who's been traumatized in the past who has memories that keep popping up that are bugging you. If, if you're in that situation, find a good therapist who does EMDR. And you can find out more about EMDR by going to emdr.com. You'll find everything you want to know. It's the most researched psychological technique ever, I think. And it's, uh, it's remarkable. It's really remarkable. And it's, it is the piece uh, for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And the, <clears throat> the men I work with who have been through all sorts of trauma absolutely love it. You know, they just uh, they, <laughs> they, they appreciate it. That's great. Uh, um, I also wanted to ask: Can you can you touch on a little bit with regard to your innovative um, in, interactive website with uh, with uh, web healing? Because um, it seems as if online, you know, there is a multitude of resources that you are able to to line up, whether it be videos, whether it be um, articles a number of different ways in which people can get in touch with resources, I believe. And that's a huge issue with a lot of people that we deal with because maybe they live way out in the boonies. They don't have access to to things in the city. They don't have access to people. What you're doing on your website with web healing, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, web healing, um, I started back in 1995. It was the year after my father died. And I was thinking, what can I do to honor my father? And I thought, well, I'll put up a website because he loved the, the Internet. And I'll put up a website that helps people who are grieving. And so it was actually the first website that helped uh, grieving folks. And uh, I put up the first um, memorial site also called The Place to Honor Grief. And both of those have been up now for since 1995. And uh, I also added a forum which I think started in 98, something like that. It's been going ever since then. It's still going now. Periods of uh, slow and, and uh, some periods of speed, but uh, it's it's an interesting place where people can come and gather. And I thought at the time in the 90s, I was thinking, you know, men need action. The forum would be a place where they could go anonymously and take the action of writing, you know. And I was wrong, <laughs> Because who showed up? It was all women. You know, women preferred this. Yeah, well, it was fine. It was fine. It's, it's been fantastic. And some men do, but that's mostly women. And they like the interaction of talking about it because basically, you know, these people will tell me, they say it's like, um, I need a plastic cover for my keyboard because, you know, I can't, I just cry and cry and cry as I'm typing. And see, that's an action. The action of typing is linking that action with your tears. And we didn't talk about this, but there's three basic types of action. One is creative action, you know, where we do, we write a song, we 
we uh, hear a song, we um, use some sort of creativity. You think of Eric Clapton and the song that he wrote for his uh, son, you know, when his son died. Mm -hmm. He wrote three songs, actually, Tears in Heaven, My Father's Eyes, and When the Circus Left Town. And the Circus Left Town is the one song that's really about his grief. It's so beautiful and so powerful because Clapton took his son to the circus the night before he died. And so the song is telling his son that one trip to the circus will have to last you a lifetime. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's so moving. I didn't know that backstory. Yeah. Imagine Clapton. Oh, gosh, it's a long story. I I go into that story in The Way Men Heal and and also I think some in the uh, Mother's Book. But uh, it's a fascinating story. And Clapton was two years sober at the time, you know, and it wiped him out. And he said it was like, what do you call it? He says a waking nightmare is the way he described what he was going through. And he said there were only two things that helped him. One was AA, which he had been in for two years, and the other was his guitar. And he describes what he would do. He'd go by himself and play guitar for long periods, and the song slowly sort of crept up. Can you imagine as he's writing that song for his son, that's taking an action that's connecting him with the loss. Okay. You see how it works? Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's creative action. There's practical action, like Jordan's action, you know, dedicating his season uh, or dedicating his, his baseball work to his father. Um, that's practical, dedicating your work, dedicating your um, anything you do, you know, just dedicating. Men do it all the time, golf tournaments, um, just dedicating. And the last one is thinking, you know, using your thinking action to be able to connect and tell your story. Anyway, yeah, the website has is, is been a great uh, – a great place for people to meet. You know, it was just fascinating for me because the uh, there was a group of mothers of twins who met on my site, and it was like four or five. They were from all around the world. One was from Japan, one was from Canada, one was from two were from the U.S. I think. But I realized at that time, oh my gosh, only it happened with the internet. You know, these green I- people from all over the world, found each other, and they glommed on each other like nobody's business, you know. It was just, uh, and that's what the Internet can do. It can help people with similar losses get connected with each other, and that's a very powerful experience for them. Yeah. Can you tell people if they're interested, whether male or female, where they can go and um, resource, research the resources or perhaps partake if it's, it's still active? Oh yeah, webhealing.com is definitely still there, and there's a pay, uh, there's a page of links on webhealing that lists all sorts of grief resources that are out there. And of course, there's a forum and what? What in particular would you recommend if you you know you're you're a male and you're and you, and you are looking for for this? I mean, they, they can go out into the garage and build their thing, but maybe they're looking for other things in terms of. The kinds of things that we've been talking about. What if we have we have males here in our audience, lots of them, and they may be, or females, and saying, "Listen, this is what what we need to focus on to to help, or maybe these particular things." What what would you recommend in terms of uh, resources for people that may be searching or wanting wanting to get in touch with um, where they are in their in their particular. Uh, so I, stage, shall I say, of grief right now. They're male. Well, 
I think for men, some of the best resources are themselves. You know, and I would urge men to think after a loss. The kinds of things they did that might have honored the person. And because see, men are never taught that, that their actions are actually healing. You know, and in fact, they're taught that they're not healing, that they should be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And yeah. so, you know, a lot of the work that I do with men is just honoring that they're already healing and pointing out to them, hey, look, you're doing this. He goes, oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, and then they, they wake up and they say, damn, that's right, I'm doing this. I'm doing it. And then the next time his wife says, you're not talking about it, he can say, that's not what I do. I do it this way, you know? And it's yeah. very affirming for them. They need, you know, and they can read the little the Wayman Heal book, and it'll give you a real good sense of how you may be doing things. And I think that's that's a good resource for men is that little the Wayman Heal book. It's on ebook. It's on paperback. You know, get a copy and have a good look. Uh, I'll I'll post it after the show for you so that people you know hopefully they can um, they can get that. And like you say, short is good and. It kind of gets to the point. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, and, you know, you it, could also post that article about the basketball if you would. Okay. I yeah, think people but, might find something from that, that that they'd find helpful. It It's very illustrative. That's wonderful. Well, I, you know, this this has been quite an illuminating hour. We still have, we have about an, uh, a minute and a half or so left of our show, but I just want to say how valuable this has been and how insightful and I hope that you will be receptive to keeping in touch with us because we like to keep in touch with good people such as yourself. Absolutely. But, but I'd love to keep good, in touch. Good information. What what would you what would you want to leave us as a parting message overall to it to instill hope in you know, with regard to this subject matter, particularly for people who are stuck, families who are stuck, males who Three are words. stuck. Three words. Men yes. are good. Men are good. You know, that is a naughty thing to say in this culture. But I'm telling you, I say it all the time. Men are good. And guys out there, happy Father's Day. You're a good man just as you are. That's the way I'd like to leave it with men. Uh, okay, well that you know that that does say a lot, and we we need to reinforce that. We need to let uh, you know yes. media and society um, yes. realize these points of, yes. about men. So it's I our agree. charge to, to take this information and to pass it on to others. And I ho- I, I know that you'll continue doing your good works, and so we thank you, thank you so much for for being on our show. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. Any parting thoughts? Well, I also want to thank you, Tom, for for coming on and and discussing this topic because it's not something that is discussed often enough or widely enough. And I know that um, anyone who listens to this podcast is going to take away some very, very valuable information. Good. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And may we say have a happy Father's Day tomorrow. You know, those of us that are listening, some of us, it's very hard who have lost our fathers, but we will do yes. something positive in, in, in action to, um, to uh, memorialize our fathers and taking that advice well from said. Tom. So, well again, said. thank you so much. And uh, we will close out this edition of Shattered Lives Radio until, until our next show. Again, thanks, Tom, and keep in touch, okay? Okie dokie. We'll see you. All righty. Thanks to I
Have a great weekend, everyone. And be safe.